You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I was joined by Drew Dinkmeyer from DailyRoto.com and Andrew Wiggins uh, from Draft Day fame. You've probably seen his name on the leaderboard of DraftKings and FanDuel for quite some time. Uh the two joined me on the show to talk about what it's like to actually be a DFS professional. Obviously not a life that uh, that a lot of us have led. These guys, you know, they're playing for hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of the year. And they joined the show to talk about what it's like mentally to live a life, you know, playing... Uh, games of uh, games of skill, but definitely there is uh, you know a gambling element to the nature of daily fantasy, and it's not uh, it's not always easy. I think that Drew and Andrew have a lot of interesting things to say about what it's like to play DFS and really about what it's like to work online and in a more solitary, you know, sort of uh, sort of way of living. I, I think it's a, a really interesting show, and I think that you guys will appreciate it. Of course, if you like the show, you can always leave a rating and review on iTunes. That's very helpful. And if you really like the show, you can sign up for the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash TakeCast. For just $5 a month, you get bonus episodes of the show. You get access to our Patreon-only Discord and uh, much more more. Uh, We are sponsored by rotoexperts.com and dailyroto.com. On Daily Roto, you get access to the best NFL, NBA, and PGA projections anywhere on the internet, and you can get 10% off of the Daily Roto product with the promo code Rory. Uh, And also, we are sponsored by Roto Experts, where I am heading up the NFL 365 package. That's all the NFL content that you can handle. We have season-long projections powered by the Daily Roto projection model, paywall content, and free content as well. That's $39.99, and you can get 10% off of that year-long package with the promo code MATIC. Now let's get into the show. All right, everyone, welcoming into the show, Drew Dinkmeyer, return guest, and a guy that I've been angling to get on the show for months. I've been I've been berating him in our in uh our private Slack channel to try and get him to do the podcast. And all I had to do to get Andrew Wiggins to come on the show was have Dink ask him to do it. So we are joined by two of the former DK pros, Drew Dinkmeyer and Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins, do you feel like a sellout doing a tout podcast right now? No, of course not. And you can't say no to Dink. So here I am. You can't. You really can't. Uh, the idea, though, I'll give credit, you know, Drew, you're really relishing your producer credits on this podcast. So it was your it was your idea to do a podcast about what it's like to actually play DFS for a living, because I think uh, I agree with your point that a lot of what people think about it is definitely not accurate. And also, it's just a good way to frame, I think, a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast, which is just like, 
how to live when your entire life is tethered to the internet and to, uh, to a computer and trying to find ways to create balance and harmony when that is your existence. So uh, just so everyone knows, you know, we don't have to go through the whole journey, but uh, Dink, why don't you do like the, the elevator pitch of your DFS career and then Wiggins, you do the same? Yeah, so I, uh, I started playing DFS in like 2010, 2011, um, played for a few years, had some good results, decided I was going to try to turn this into a career and a profession, saw an opportunity on the content side as well with providing DFS content to kind of smooth out the results of playing. Uh, ironically, back then, there was no need for that. The results of playing didn't need to be smoothed in any way, shape, or form. It's very different now. Um, but I've been doing it since, uh, you know, I left my finance job in June of 2013. So I've been doing this for just under six years now. All right. And if you guys want to hear more about Dink's whole journey, like literally, if you just Google him, you'll find podcasts, you'll find uh, like New York Times articles or whatever, and they'll, they'll give a more blow by blow account. Uh, Wiggins, your, your turn, pal. Yeah, well, first, I'd say when Drew was getting into touting, it was me and, and actually more so my business partner at the time, Taylor KB, would go after Dink on Twitter and say, <laughs> don't go out and put out good information. Just play the games. The games are good. You don't need to make them worse because we had seen this whole thing play out in poker where with card runners, which is a site that we had started, we played a big part in making the games much more difficult. And obviously it was going to happen with DFS. But we were trying to slow it down. But uh, my story is that I started draft day with Taylor in 2010. I think we started building it. And then we eventually launched it, I believe, in 2011. And we tried that for a few years, but we were just never going to be able to compete with DraftKings ultimately. I think they went out and raised like $120 million. They're like, okay, um, that's probably for us. You know, we're not going to be able to raise anywhere near that. So we went out and sold draft day. Um, you know, unfortunately it was not for a profit, but it allowed us to get out of the business. And at that point we were kind of like, okay, what are we going to do now? We realized that the games are really good and basically just jumped in playing full time. I'd been dabbling in NBA and then the next NFL season was when I really went went full bore and I've been playing since then. So I think that would have been 2014. Um, and it was certainly had ups and downs since then, but overall it's, it's been pretty good. I honestly forgot until this moment right now that you were one of the owners of draft day. Like I legitimately hit that information. It completely slipped. So you transitioned from owning draft day to being a DK pro. It was a pretty seamless yeah, transition we... for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a heck of a lot more fun playing than trying. Oh, to run. I'm sure. It was completely miserable. We went into it with this idea that if we just put out a good product, that everything would take care of itself. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. So we basically just got our ass kicked in the, in the operator business. And the games were so good in 2014. Like I didn't really know what I was doing. Basically with basketball, I was just optimizing basketball monster. I, I wasn't even following the NBA very closely at the time, but the, you know, people were putting out zeros Regular. The games, the games were so good then that even I was a long-term winner in 2014. That's how soft the games were then. Yeah, it's like if you could just there were no optimizers anywhere, literally. So no, I, my buddy came up with a solver program in Excel, and just having that puts you so far. It was unbelievable. Do you guys know? Do you guys know the first fantasy website that had an optimizer on it? Do you guys care to wager a guess? The first I mean, fantasy site that had an optimizer I, with projections. I mean, I've only been told this like <laughs> I don't know twenty twenty five thousand times by want, David. Do you want to do you want to tell the people the first site to have an optimizer? Fantasy Insiders <laughs> claims to be the first site to ever have an optimizer on the internet. 
Is it is it not true? I, I mean, I'm pretty I, sure I it is. True. I don't know. I try not to claim to be the first at anything ever because usually you're not. Just like mathematically, you're usually not the first. So someone, no someone had to have been first, right? Yeah. It wasn't Fantasy Insiders. <laughs> That's what that David Kitchen will go to his grave claiming that in the, I believe it was the 2015 MLB season, they had the first like mainstream optimizer like to like to be used by the public well the good thing was nobody was using fantasy inside <laughs> i i think you know what to be honest with you wiggins i'm pretty sure that that site was defunct before nba projections even made it on there so it wouldn't have intersected with your games at all anyways man it's just so hard it really it literally feels like a lifetime ago back in 2015 so well, it is. It is a. It is a completely different environment because the you know the before the lineup optimizer and the after the lineup optimizer era. It's a very clear line in the sand for DFS. I think ownership percentages are different. Edges in the games are different, and and that's kind of where I wanted to start. Is you guys have both really been playing on both sides of that coin, and so just from a playing perspective, and in terms of like even kind of minute decision-making, like uh, something, Wiggins, that uh, gets brought up a lot when people are talking about NBA is like, oh, well, the, you know, this is going to be a train. This is going to be a really popular team. So trying to, trying to not have that team, trying to not have the chalk team, even in cash games, that's not something that people would have talked about three years ago. You would have just been trying to play the best team. Yeah, of course. And I'm convinced I have CTE from playing DFS for, for this – so trying to go back to the old days, remember, it's like it's going to be difficult. But, yeah, I mean, you would run – I mean, I still in NBA run my cash team and pretty much everything, but I'll acknowledge it's certainly not optimal for GPPs. I think that the GPPs are probably still, in most cases, soft enough that they're still an edge there, so I do it anyway. But, like, football, I would never do that now, where back then, you know, people didn't know about stacking. I mean, that's amazing to even say that, but, like, stacking was a concept at some point that people started talking about, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So if you went back far enough, you know, the games are so good, you could just put in a cash game that wasn't really correlated, and it would definitely be plus EV in a GPP. And I don't think that's the case at all anymore. You need to tailor your, your lineups for the specific games that you're in. Is that the, the biggest difference that you've noted in sort of the last three or four years as well, Drew? Yeah, I think, I think the difference for me has been going from a cash game grinder to a person who now plays cash games much less frequently and plays primarily GPPs. And there's a number of reasons that I've kind of gone in that direction, but um, it's just, I think, I think it's very hard to do both really, really well. I think you have to have kind of a mindset that is geared towards one or the other. And back then cash games were just so profitable because you could play the optimal lineup and because not everybody you were competing against was using the same projections or using the same optimizers and tools, you would have some natural variance associated with it. And then like Andrew said, you would run into players that would play guys who, you know, were ruled out like 10 minutes before lock. There were people that just didn't make changes to their teams and whatnot. So it's very, very different um, how I play DFS now compared to how I played DFS, you know, three or four years ago. But the thing you have to keep in mind, too, is that we've gotten way more advanced as players, too. So we yeah. have tools now that we didn't have back then. So the best players were a lot worse as well. Yep. You, yeah. if, you, if you had all the tools you have today and went back and played in 2014, 
And you probably have like a hundred percent ROI. Or how maybe- much? Do you, how much do you think if you if you could import the daily roto projection tools into twenty thirteen? Like, do you think you would just win everything? Like every night? You would probably win almost every night. Yeah, I think I think you'd I think you'd I think you'd win uh, an unbelievably high percentage of the nights, and I think you'd you know have top five, top ten GPP results very very consistently. Like you would be having those like you know multiple times a week type situation compared to now where like, you know, depending on kind of the field size that you're playing in, you're trying to, you know, rack up a few of those a month type thing. If you're, if you're a professional player, like it's just, it's just a very different world. And I think there were a certain group of professional players that were more advanced on the tool side that that was almost the entirety of the reason for their success was that they were just ahead of the field on the tool side compared to actual projections or knowing the right ways to play the games or different things like that. They were just able to better correlate lineups quickly in a manner with optimizers. And it's a, it's a battle that I personally lost both as a player and as someone running a site was I tried to keep optimizers off of daily roto for as long as possible. Cause I really thought uh, for a period of time that the, the enjoyment of playing fantasy sports was kind of having your own uh, input on the lineup decisions that you were making. And I, I was oh, too concerned about it. It's not fun to it's lose not, though. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not. Um, and that's part of the challenge is like the tools got better and it became tougher to kind of keep off. And then MME just kept growing in terms of popularity. That became the game format that, that the sites really promoted. They didn't promote you know single entry or three max or cash games, or they promoted these huge, uh, up top prize pools in MME. And so that's the game that people most wanted to play. But I was always trying to keep people off of our site that just wanted to come to the site, press a button and then enter those lineups on the DraftKings. Cause I thought that's ultimately like not the experience that these people should be wanting to have to participate in this. Like it's just, it's the people who are going to the, you know, the Seven Eleven and getting their pick five lotto numbers and then walking away and like, blaming the game or blaming the lotto machine or whatever. Like they're not invested in any of the decision-making. And I thought those types of people were not the type of people that you wanted long-term as customers. But ultimately I lost that battle in terms of trying to keep the optimizers off the site, optimizers and and the machines won once again. The machines on daily roto do like allow for a lot of decision-making though. Like that's the, that's the, the thing now is that all of the tout content, it's not about cash games anymore. It's like talking about like, leverages and uh you know having this percent versus the field or that percent versus the field or stacking this way like it's all all the all the content now is about how to like create the most optimal 10 20 or 150 gpp lineups which i actually think wiggins might make like some cash games a little bit easier now in the sense of like the coverage for cash games is probably not as good or not as focused or is that wrong well, I think there's definitely a higher GP or def, a higher ROI to be had in tournaments. Well, so yeah. Most of the best players focus more effort on tournaments now, probably because I think it requires more time. I mean, if you're playing across various sites, various slates, and you're trying to run 150 lineups in low stakes, and then you're trying to run a bunch of stuff in high stakes, which you're going to have a different approach if you're doing it optimally. You know, you're going to have different subsets for for each low stakes and high stakes and that takes a lot of effort and then you have to worry I about I got a headache just like thinking about that time management yeah it's crazy and then you know as things are changing you have to re-optimize those I don't even know how they do it and then they're trying to run cash games as well so those people are not going to be putting the best possible cash game out there it's just it's just you can't do it there's too much on their plate so I think that's helped a little bit but 
at the same time, people just understand how to approach cash games so much better than they did before. And you just end up having so many two V twos or three V threes. And um, you're, you're flipping coins over the, like the punt place, which just has made the variance go through. the Yeah. Roof. Josh, Josh, Akoji versus the wall right. day for, for 50 K or whatever. Like we were talking about how soft the games were. And if you would win every day, I know the first year in 2014, 15, the NFL season, I had one losing week and I lost like 1%. You know, it's just absolute insanity to think about that now because, I mean, you could easily lose 75% of the weeks in the NFL and you just hope that you have like one or two GPP weeks to, to hold you afloat. It's just a completely different ballgame out there. Yeah, and uh, so I guess uh, one of the questions I had here was about the, like, the bigger games. And I think the bigger games in like 2013, 2014 were a lot different because obviously – First of all, the presence of Condia, who is not in those big games anymore. And so I wanted, you know, one or both of you to speak to that. And then also, do you find that the uh, – I know that there was definitely a phenomenon of, like, people with no experience not knowing who they are, like, buying 10K games or people posting 10K games or 5K games who, like, literally no one had ever heard of. And my guess would be that if you show up on DraftKings – and you click the 5K NBA head-to-head lobby, if you did that every day for a month, you would probably not see, uh, like, a non-regular player. Like, there would just not be a a soft game out there to be had the way that there was in 2014. I think that's pretty fair. And I can recall that same season, the the 14-15 NFL season, like, 6-man 5Ks on FanDuel would go off 50-50s, like, a couple of them a week. And... I don't. I doubt a six-man 5K 50-50 went off at all this year. Maybe a four-man went off once. And it was mostly – you had a bunch of gambler types, poker players, sports bettors that were just coming in to check out, like, the new flavor that were probably smart gamblers overall, but they just didn't quite know the nuances of, of DFS. And then you just had the sites advertising like crazy. So there were a lot of randos just coming on, firing, you know, they deposit 5K and sit right in a 5K game. And they're pretty much drawing dead. You just really rarely see that anymore. Um, I, I almost never sell heads up games, really at <laughs> really at any level, but especially at the high stakes. Um, and I think that's just because there isn't the advertising out there. And my hope is, as the sports betting stuff goes out, you, there, you really think that the advertising is that much to do with it? Like you think that the advertising is what drove those deposits? You don't like? I, I guess it's kind of maybe similar to like the poker boom sort of thing. Though I would be less educated on that than you would. Yeah, I mean, the advertising was huge. And people thought that it was the next best thing. And, and then you, throughout the downfall, you had all the articles coming out about all the pros and how they were approaching the games with their mathematical approach. And, oh, it's rigged. And I think you lost a lot of people in that that probably won't ever come back because it just lost the allure of this great new thing that was so much fun and anybody could win type of thing. Like, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's 1% of the people are taking most of the money. You know, but where's the fun in that? Do you think that number still holds true now that 1% wins X amount? I think I would actually think it's more scattered now with so many more people dedicating their time and their like DraftKings balance or FanDuel balance or whatever to tournaments. I would assume the money is more spread out now. Um, I don't think so. I don't think it's too much more spread out. I think there's more people trying to, trying to be pros. And so you naturally get, you know, a few more that are in that. Um, but you know, it's still, it's, it's the names change over time, but I think the number of, of yeah, people maybe that's in, fair. in that 
group kind of stays somewhat similar. And I can't speak too much to the really like nosebleed games because I, I never really played those. I think I've played like maybe one or two. Wiggins is just uh, Wiggins is a sick gambler. He knows, he knows <laughs> these players. guys. These guys like these guys like Pete and and Wiggins and um, the Chipotle Bros and whatnot. These guys like that that play at those levels. Like it's a it's a lot to take if you like. I don't have the risk tolerance to mess around with that. So I've played maybe like one 10k game in my entire DFS career, and I've played probably like you know a dozen to 25k games. Um, just having that's played that's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's, it's, I remember after I won the Millie Maker in 2014, I was, I was getting pushed to kind of like really, hey, you're really good at NBA, like push your edge here. And I remember like for a period of like two or three weeks, I started to up my volume up into like 40, 50K a night instead of my usual like five to 10K a night. And I just felt totally uncomfortable with it. I just didn't feel, I, I felt like it was too much real money to be. Uh, risking on a given night now looking back on it those games were so much better I understand why people were suggesting that I do do that because you know compared to get, getting that much money out then compared to getting out even like a fifth of that now much much more valuable getting the money out back then do you do you regret that decision at all not pushing it more when the games were better yeah a little bit a little bit I mean looking back on this with the with the understanding of how DFS would evolve in general, it was just an experience that I never had. I didn't, I didn't come from the poker background. So I think everybody that came from the poker background had more insights into how things would develop than I did. And so there's some things that I regret. There's other things like, you know, starting daily road and stuff like that. I don't really regret. I think that was, I think that that was a reasonable take at the time for what I did. And I always thought that like there would be somebody filling this void in the content space. And I still think that would have been the case. I think we might've been a little bit early to doing it as well as we were doing it back then. And maybe there was more opportunity to take advantage of, but I do regret a little bit not pushing as much on the cash game side when I was really, really successful as a cash game player. Um, because now I'm living, you know, almost entirely the GPP life. And while I have a lot less out on a given slate than I did back then in the cash game days, um, the amount of losing that you have to endure <laughs> now compared to then is a lot psychologically. Like you just have to deal with a lot of losing. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people who think about, you know, being a DFS pro, they think, oh, you're just winning like, you know, five out of seven nights on a given week. And that's really not the case. The way that these prize pools are set up, primarily if you're playing GPPs and whatnot, you're losing a lot. You're losing frequently and often. And then eventually you're, you're hoping to roll into a couple really top heavy prize pools that kind of make your way for the whole season. And uh, that was me last year, for example, I had three separate losing streaks last year of $60,000 or more. And I still made money on the year, but each of those losing streaks during them felt like I was just, I was just, just bleeding money at an aggressive level and the games were dead and I could never play DFS or be successful again. It's a, it's a tough road, man. The variance is, is very difficult. Well, yeah, Wiggins, really Wiggins just retires like once every two weeks. Like every, like <laughs> once every two weeks, Wiggins will come in our Slack chat and just be like, ah, oh, the games are dead. DFS is dead. I'm retiring. And then. I've, I've, I've tried to get better at that. I, my, my real life friends give me a bunch of crap because I, I legitimately was going to retire. And, uh, to do what though? What, what could give you the sweat, <laughs> Wiggins? I don't, I don't believe that there's something that could give this to you. Other well, than I was, it, it was just a matter I was trying to not end up on the streets. I had a really bad <laughs> last year. And I was down so much through like week 13 or something that I literally like hit my stop loss. I can't lose anymore. 
you know, I just have to go and find something else. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I didn't play for a couple of weeks. Uh, but I had a, I had a seat in the DK final and I banked like eighth, I think for 200 grand. And then the next week I wasn't going to play. I mean, you, you really can't make this shit up next week. I was going to play. And I was like, yeah, I, I rolled to my computer 20 minutes before lock. And I go, all right, I'm just going to throw 150 in the million maker. I think it was $10 that week. And I took second. Frank won, but you know, that's how it goes. So now, now I've made back 350 and I'm still not out of my downswing, but it was close enough that I had to go for it. And so those two weeks, you know, if I, if I don't take top 10 in the final and I don't all like randomly take second, just pure, pure luck. I didn't even, you know, literally I just threw random people out of there. I, I think I ended up having 30% Albert Wilson and he went for like 40. It was like 1% owned. It was just stupid, stupid luck. Um, you know, so those out. of you listening at home, you can do it too. Cause all you need to do <laughs> is just throw 150 in with random ownership percentages. And if you bink nice life. Hey, Bert Wilson, always a good GPP play. Uh, actually this, this isn't on our agenda Wiggins, but I actually want you to talk about the influence that Bitcoin's price had on the high stakes DFS scene. Cause my, my, I, I sort of casually follow poker in the way that like probably a lot of people my age who watched it on TV during the poker boom followed it. But you know, I don't have a true love for it the way I do for DFS. And my sense is, is that the Bitcoin price did and does have an impact on the action going on in poker. And I wonder if that is the same in DFS. Yeah. In theory, you would think it would in poker. The thing was that so many of the guys had Bitcoin early. Yeah. They got in when it was $24. Right. And, and they just like the, the poker players from what I can tell, and I'm not really tapped into the poker scene anymore, but from what I can tell, just following people on Twitter and, and just some conversations here and there, it's like, I don't think a lot of them sold. So yeah. they put it all the way up and like, okay, life's great. I'm going to be fine private, whatever. Um, I'm sure they probably, well, I think they actually, at the time that Bitcoin was so high, people just weren't gambling that much because they're like, okay, I don't really need the money. Right. You know? so I'm not sure it really helped the games all that much. And then Bitcoin crashed. I'm like, oh shit, I got to go back to playing professional poker again, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't think it actually impacted all that much, but I could be wrong. On the DFS side, it certainly didn't really seem, I don't know. I mean, when Bitcoin was at its peak was when I was getting absolutely murdered. So I'm not going to sit here and say the games are great. Uh, but maybe they were and I was just playing really terribly. I don't know. Uh, do either of you have anything to add to the, to the Condia Sahil saga of the, the transfer of millions of dollars? Because I would actually say as like, you know, I was just like a, you know, a 19-year-old college kid playing DFS and seeing Condia in all of those games was like, that's like a, a, a very distinct memory that I think a lot of people have about the early days of DFS. And I was wondering if, hit like those two guys specifically leaving the ecosystem has had, you know, a, a real impact on like, especially higher stakes games. I guess, again, Wiggins more qualified to answer since Dink has only ever played one 10 K game. <laughs> I'm the yeah. biker. <laughs> hey, Dink just found that bread route out Dink, there. Dink, I that. played a one K head to head game, which I is one like- K is not 10 Ks. <laughs> right. Like, let's, let's, let's keep it, keep it on the level here. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they both vanished at a time where everything was in decline. So it's tough to really point at them. Would more games go off if they were around? Yeah, probably, especially since they played in every single game. But I think it's interesting to look at with those two is the different way that they left. Uh, You know, Sahil obviously didn't leave on his own terms, unfortunately. And, 
and Kanye did. I mean, you got to give Kanye all the credit in the world. Yeah, Kanye just shows up once a year, wins a million dollars, and then retires again. Well, the last season that he played, he was absolutely smashing. And I know some of the other high stakes guys were going pretty hard at him, and he was crushing everyone, myself included. I was taking his heads up and, and losing. And he was up a significant amount, I'm sure, well into the seven figures through. I don't know, week six or seven. And then he was just like, you know what? I've been running hot. I'm probably going to give some back. Like, see ya. And yeah. <laughs> like, that is unheard of in the gambling world. And No, and- no. No one walks away up uh, one and a half million dollars up. You just, you just don't do it. The thing with Sahil was that he was a sicko from day one. And, and if you go way back to the beginning, he had actually run it up and gone broke like twice maybe. And – to have the mentality to be able to battle, like I don't know the exact numbers of what him and Kanye were playing, but somewhere between fifty and like three hundred thousand dollars a night in the NBA is basically what I've gathered. And then he lost something like Kanye lost like three million to him, something like that. And to be able to do that in the first place, like there's something you're wired in a certain way that you're probably going to give it all back because you're you're just you're pushing the limit at every chance possible and so Sahil's story was probably gonna end that way and it's too bad because Sahil is really an awesome dude yeah, he's a nice guy every now and then I see him in the games I'm like I really cross my finger like I would just love to see him go on a run and get back in the <laughs> story would that be yeah be like well every game. once in a while every once in a while he'll be in like a soccer showdown slate just in like one <laughs> of the ten dollar gpps and i'm always just like i wonder what happened what ended up happening here and the reason i asked about that is that after the uh the the bitcoin cash airdrop where a bunch of people got bcash for free saw was back in the games for like a week after that so i always kind of thought that there would there was some sort of relation between uh between crypto and Bitcoin. Uh, but Wiggins, I do want to talk more about the idea, you know, that you, I, you do sort of believe that, uh, that DFS is dead and that the games are too tough and that the ownership percentages are too good. And I think that Dink probably has a, like a, a dissenting viewpoint to that opinion, but just the idea that there, there has to be a way if, if the whole field is, you know, using the same numbers and the same projections and has similar thoughts on ownership, there has to be a way to manifest that information for profitability, right, Drew? So I would say that I I think the games change and they evolve over time, but I think there's always going to be some level of edge. It's just, is the edge kind of worth the squeeze and worth withstanding the variance associated with it? And I think that's ultimately what Andrew kind of gets at with different game types and in different formats. And so for me personally, I've like, I've toned down my cash game exposure in a big way because I feel like the amount of time and the amount of stress that I was, I was putting over one V one and two V two and three V three decisions was not worth the amount of money that I was going to be making doing that. And I saw like real tangible uh, health issues that I was having that were stress related because of it. So I decided to kind of step away from that. But I think there will always be edges in these games because I think there's going to be enough casual people playing them that you kind of just have to find where those casual people are flooding. I think of late, it's been in the MME side of things in those pools. Now, people are getting more sophisticated and, and sharper about it. But I think, for example, like three or four years ago, I think a big edge was just understanding news and understanding projections. And I feel like now 
even though I, you know, I take part in running a projection site and I feel like we offer some of, if not the best projections in the industry, the edge that we're creating over other people with, you know, good, but not great projections is not that big. It's relatively small. Like we're talking about, you know, R squareds and MBA of the difference between like 0.55 and like 0.5. So it's not huge in terms of the value add that we're having over projections, but the tools and then the ability to try to teach and educate people to how to think through constructing lineups. So I think a lot of the value in DFS right now is around lineup construction and being thoughtful about the lineups that you're creating. And that's something that a lot of our content has shifted to over time to try to try to grasp. And so I think the edge is kind of always evolving in different ways. And I think that's kind of where it is now. I don't know where it will go long-term and I don't know how sports betting will have an impact on whether the games just dry up completely because sports betting is like an easier thing for someone who's casual just to choose a side as opposed to putting a lineup together. But I think there's still edge in DFS to be had. I think it moves around by different sport type in, in different games. Some of the niche sports, I think there's a ton of edge. There's in. definitely there's definitely edge in the niche sports. It's, like, it's NFL, NBA, MLB that has the most – you know, math gone into the projections and yeah. the most discussion about, you know, optimal lineup, like optimal lineup construction. Yeah, I think so for me, like there's a ton of edge in WNBA. So I've enjoyed playing WNBA the last few years, but there's, you know, that can go away at any time. So like, that's the way these things go. Um, I know some people have had success in like MMA. It's not a sport that I play, but they, it's a niche sport. And then there's some other niche sports like soccer, which I know Davis, you've played. And it sounds like from the way people talk about on Twitter that all the regs are still like diving headfirst in this. And there's almost all the, all the regs are able to fund themselves in soccer for like the, you know, every once in a while, someone will come and play who doesn't know what they're doing. And if, if you don't know what you're doing in soccer, you would be more lost playing soccer DFS than versus any other sport ever. I like, I wish if my, my dream would be for DraftKings to super aggressively market, the soccer product, whether it be here or overseas and like pimp it the way that they did NFL because newbies just have such, you know, uh, they're just at such a crazy disadvantage. So like, yeah, I think, I think the, the thing now is more about finding your edge and really perfecting it as opposed to just trying to be like good at NFL, MLB and NBA cash games. I think that, so finding your edge and I think that's a really important methodology that people should be kind of taking uh, notes on. If, if you're trying to play DFS really successfully, I think you need to find your path to do it. And your path might resemble someone else's path who's been successful, but it's more likely going to be something that you create on your own, that you kind of figure out where you're successful and how your mind works uh, for what game types and, and what approaches. Because that's we get so many generic questions like, you know, about our optimizer, like, oh, how many uniques do you use? How much shuffle do you use? And I try to explain to people, like, it's different for every slate. And for me, it's also like a little bit of a feel thing. Like I run lineups and I look at what the lineups look like and I look at what my exposures look like and then I I tweak and I run again. And it's hard, like, to take generic rules of thumb and be successful at replicating someone else's strategy at this point in the game in DFS. I think you kind of need to find your own path. And I think, unfortunately, it's one of the challenges of, like, running a, a content site is trying to explain to people that, yeah, like we're going to put you in the best position with the best projections we can put out there and the best tools we can put out there. But if you're coming here to just like click a button and enter, you're probably not having an edge over the field. You're probably having a very, very small edge over the field. You need to like 
think through how you're constructing your lineups and think through the contests you're entering. And like, there's a lot of responsibility on the individual player. And there's a lot of people that don't want that responsibility. So they don't want to deal with it at this point in the game. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair. And I, I guess Wiggins, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, a lot of what you would say when, you know, the DFS is dead would be the Knights in NBA where the Lakers have nine bodies and there, there's a team that's owned by 905 people in the, the, the $5 single entry double up or whatever. Just the idea that the, the optimal lineup, the truly mathematical optimal lineup is owned by too many people for it to be a profitable team. Yeah, and it's certainly discouraging when you look at people that you know aren't that strong of players and they have the exact same team. It's like, okay, where, where is the edge really coming from? But back to the original question, I would say the DFS, if you go back a year or so before the Supreme Court overturned the sports betting thing, like it, it, maybe it was dead. And it got a bit of a lifeline. Well, with two things. One, the merger not going through between DraftKings and FanDuel, which in hindsight would have been a complete disaster. And, and then two, with sports betting coming into the fold. So now – both of these companies, like by all accounts, DraftKings was basically out of money around the time that the, the, the law got overturned. And that allowed them to go out and raise more money. And then FanDuel was acquired by Paddy Power. And all of a sudden you got money back in. You have the sites now competing again with prize pools. Overlay actually returned to certainly to football. Uh, and I would say pretty much all the sports, I think. And like that was gone. And when you take that out, that makes a big difference. Not only is it just free money that's in the ecosystem, but it's drawing more people in. And now you've got the sites advertising again, even though they're advertising for sports betting. And they're advertising in states where they don't have sports betting. So that's made a big difference, certainly, I think, over the last year. And how that will play out, I don't know. But I think, I think the sports betting stuff is going to be far enough out in the future where it's not going to be everywhere and really stealing people from DFS. But they'll be spending money. They'll be able to raise money. Those are really good things. The other thing I would say is that people – really don't understand how much variance there is in DFS, especially the people that are playing GPPs. And so you really have no idea what your win rate is. I think it might take a couple of seasons, but as those seasons progress, the games are getting harder. Maybe they're just changing. Everything's changing. How you approach the game is changing. It's very difficult to know what your true win rate is. So you could bank a couple scores and think all of a sudden that you're the greatest player in the world and maybe you're not even a winning player. So it's just hard to assess where you're at at any given time. Like, I don't know, am I a better player this season than I was last year? Maybe. Maybe it was just when I was losing, I was in a terrible mindset and putting out crappy teams. I do think there's some truth to that, that when you're losing, you start making mistakes, they start compounding, and then, like, you get super frustrated right away when you know you went the wrong way in a 2v2. Like, you, you dwell on that all night, and then you don't oh, sleep. A losing, a losing, I mean – a losing streak in, in NBA DFS is like nothing. And especially now that they have showdown, yet you get the showdown for the, the late night game. I, I will say my, my entry rate on showdowns when I'm losing in the main slate, it, uh, it's, it's at a 100% clip. For the regular season, yeah. like if, I'm, if I'm losing, I'm playing the showdown slate 100%. Right, so now you're just entering more variance in because the edge in that game is you know, 2% or something. Who knows what it is? Even if you're putting out the optimal, it's super low. And, and so does that just, can that just create a snowball effect on everything? I don't know. But the one thing I've tried to do this season more is just back off when I'm losing where my mindset previously was like, Oh, you know, no, you got to push it through this. And like the games are too good. So, you know, just man up and like, just deal with it. And I just don't think that works at all anymore. So I try and take a lot of breaks, especially at this point in the season where we've already gone through a whole NFL season and it's just super easy to get burnt out. It's like, 
you know, I, I might win three days and all of a sudden I have two losing days and it's just like, I'm super pissed off. It's like, I never even had the, I might even be up over that five day span, but you just get frustrated really quickly now. So I'll just try and step away from it and, and not allow things to snowball. But well, um, I mean, a, you know, a big part about DFS is that it, it really promotes a pretty unhealthy lifestyle. You are, you're tied to a clock, right? Your, your whole day revolves around whether it be noon for NFL, 6 PM for NBA. Like you and I were talking earlier and I was like, Oh yeah, I start cooking dinner around five and you were like, Oh, that's so suboptimal. But like, how, like how can, like, how is living a lifestyle where cooking dinner at 5 PM suboptimal healthy? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, and so it's one thing where like your mind is either divorced where you're thinking about two things. You're like thinking about like, Oh, is Robert Covington going to be out tonight? Am I, am I playing Josh Koji? And are, is the broccoli seasoned well enough? Or, or you're just sitting alone at your laptop by yourself in your office. And it, it really just promotes this, like, you know, kind of just this horrible cycle of, of isolation and, and anxiety, which I know Drew really wanted to talk about. Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest challenges. And I think it's, I think a lot of people who have the, the idea of what it's like to be a professional DFS player, they have the idea that like, oh, you know, you sit around at home all day and then you make some decisions and then you watch the games and you win money and it's great. And there's, you know, there's a lot more nights that you lose than you win if you're a GPP player. And so it's not that great all the time doing that. And then I think the, the schedule is just very, very difficult to maintain a diverse, healthy lifestyle on the whole. The living with a countdown clock is very difficult because you feel like all day, at least I do, like I could be running errands and I'm thinking in my head, I have three hours, 22 minutes to lock. I have three hours, 19 minutes to lock. Yeah, I mean, everything. This is because you're a robot. It's every, just, no, it's no, awful. I, Wiggins, I'm not a robot at all. I'm like a toad. Like I am, I'm like a relatively disorganized person. I like no one, no one would uh, say that like I, I'm like an, an optimal life liver. But uh, like I, even me, I'm just like everything revolves around six o'clock during NBA season, and I don't even play that much. Like it's not like I'm getting like like three grand off a night, but it, it's still just like your your that decision making process is like embedded in you, and it makes you hesitant to like make social plans yeah. and like like do stuff like that. Like and then on on top of that, it's the the times that lock lock is naturally in all the different sports is when most people are free. Yeah. Right. Like, so NBA, it's, you know, 7 p.m. East Coast. Uh, NHL, it's the same. MLB, it's 7.05 or whatever. During football season, it's the weekends that you have locks. And this is the time that other people are available to spend time with. So it's very difficult. It like naturally isolates you from the rest of the population because your most premier hours in terms of your most important hours in terms of work are when everybody else is available. So I'll go through like an NFL season. And then NFL has the other component of it being, you know, around holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas or whatever, you know, whatever you celebrate. Yeah, the in-laws, the in-laws don't understand scripting Christmas Day lineups. Like, you know, so like I, I routinely would be like telling my family, like I can get up for like one of the two holidays. Like I can't really make it to both. And then I'll try to come like once the season ends and I'll spend time there. And it's just, it's, it's just not the same. So like you're naturally, uh, you know, isolating yourself from the entire population it can be when things are going poorly that can kind of tumble uh uh, like that can that can kind of build up on you where not only are things going poorly in terms of your own play but you're feeling very isolated you're feeling like you're kind of down in the dumps you're not around your support systems as much 
And so for me, I think it became really apparent the last few years that I need to take off a lot more time than I was taking off before, which I think is something that, you know, yeah, but you'll miss all your missions. I miss your missions. And, and when you take that time off, like I try to take that time off and not, like, not if check, I you're not checking box scores. Yeah. So like, I don't even know how I would have done. Cause that's the worst thing in your head is when you like prepare during the day. And that's one of the challenges for me providing content. Like I, if I'm not on content on a day, I'll usually take that day off if I'm in the midst of like a losing streak, because I won't even have to look at anything and that's fine. Like somebody else can manage the projections and somebody else can do our content. And I'm just not even thinking who did well, who didn't do well if our content did well. I'll like, I'll pop into our subscriber Slack chat, which always makes me feel like our content is terrible because everybody's always complaining all the time um, until the very end of the night when people start showing screenshots and then I feel good again. But it's, it's a struggle, man. It's a, it's a very isolating lifestyle. It can be a very depressive lifestyle. It's, uh, I, I just recently have figured out that I was like dealing with depression for the last few years, kind of going through this and that had a huge, huge impact on my social life and my relationships around me. Um, and I think anybody who's listened to my previous take cast appearances could probably have quickly deduced that I was dealing with depression <laughs> given some of the subject matter we were talking about. Well, Western civilization is dead, but DFS yeah. is fine. That's the yeah, general exactly. point here. Exactly. Exactly. We got yeah. Wiggins. Sometime I want Wiggins to come on to like berate me for being a socialist and a Bitcoin maximalist at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Like every time I talk about Bitcoin on a podcast, he's just like, "You're such a fraud, bro. Bitcoin <laughs> can't live in your world." Yeah, I'm not sure they quite line up, but uh, I, I'm I'm in no position to talk politics or anything along those lines because I just don't understand it well enough. But I certainly can talk about depression and gambling. Yeah, the thing about the, the two really go hand in hand. Well, I think, I think I've yet to come across anything that truly robs you of the present moment as much as DFS does. Because when you're playing, well, it's like you guys were talking about leading up to the games, you're thinking about it. But really the worst is once the games have started, if you then try and have any reasonable social interaction, even like with my wife, I, I'm not there in the conversation. Yeah. I'm thinking like, can See, I I'm actually good check at, this I'm actually good at this. Well, maybe that's why you're not so good at DFS. <laughs> it could be. It could be. But yeah, it's true. Once once things have locked, once the decisions have been made for NBA, not for NFL, I'm useless on an NFL day. Like I just, I can't do anything other than watch football. But I think maybe it's the, like the true daily nature of NBA allows me to divorce from the results a little bit more and just to be like, not 100% present, but maybe 85% present where it sounds like you guys are at about 13%. It's low. And you got to pay attention to late swap, man. Like you got to, right. I have, I have the daily roto alerts, bro. No, I, un I understand. But you know, if you're playing really, really high stakes or you're playing lots of MME and stuff like yeah. you, you have to catch the information as quickly as possible because you're, you're the amount of time you have to make decisions is very, very limited. So it's very difficult. You feel plugged into that decision-making mode from let's say like an hour and a half before lock all the way through the night. And I was obviously a big proponent of late swap for a long time because I thought that was one of the few areas that there was edge still left in DFS, especially in the cash game world. I thought I thought the games were getting too narrow without late swap, where if you got if you started out behind early, like you just couldn't do anything to kind of kind of save your night. Um, now that I'm playing cash games less, I kind of wish there wasn't late swap. I've kind of gone back on this now because I for MME it's like a pain to manage, and I still yeah. try to do it. But I thought it was mostly viable in, in cash games. So it's just difficult. You, you spend a lot of time and a lot of uh, energy. And as, as Andrew said, like, it's just very tough to be present in the moment 
even when you're around people in those social times when the games are going on, either you want to sweat them or you want to feel like you need to know what's happening in case you need to make adjustments. It's just very difficult. And the NBA NFL overlap season just it bleeds into one another and it becomes very, very uh, taxing on, on the body and on the mind. Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of that, and I don't. Wiggins the other day, he was berating me for uh, like, like I bet Dink, you probably can't fall asleep before the games end. No, 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 no. I, I can fall. I can fall asleep before the games end. Maybe, maybe I just need to be gambling more though, because it's not. It's yeah. just, it, it would just not. It's just not. Unless I won like fifty k, it just wouldn't really be. If, if I'm a, to if stay I'm asleep awake. before the games end, things have gone very. That's very the same well. thing Wiggins said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, but even then, like, I still, even when I know I'm going to lose, like, 90, <laughs> I still, it's, it's disgusting. I still sit around, like, well, maybe I'll yeah. lose 90%. Yeah. But also, and partly I enjoy watching the games, and partly it's just important to watch the games so you understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, so, and like Drew was saying, you have the, the late swap stuff. So, if you're way behind, you need to know where you're at in some of your games. You need to be making changes going into the West Coast games. So, yeah, it's just a lot. And it's helped I'm on Mountain Time. So the games here all end before midnight. Like, I can't imagine living on the East Coast. That's just insanely taxing. I was in Central Time Zone for my entire life up until this past season. Um, and even just getting that extra hour makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, that, uh, I think that's fair. Central Time, Central time is, the, is the best time, though. I think that's well, that's I mean, NBA ends – the West Coast games will end at like 12.15, sometimes 12.30. And then for me, I have to wind down a little bit. I can't just go right to bed because I'm kind of amped up from the whole night. And so you're looking at going to bed at like 1 or 1.30. And then, you know, then all of a sudden you can, if you don't have anything going on in the morning, maybe you're waking up at like 10 a.m. You just get into this weird, unhealthy cycle, I think. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the gambling, it's the, the gambling addiction lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not ideal. And I, I mean, I guess I don't even know. Have you? You've never been on the content production side of it. Well, I, I was the DK pro for a year, so it wasn't anything like what you guys have had, especially Drew. But I would have scheduled times to do content, or you have to have this article done by this certain time. And I mean, it's enough just trying to deal with playing the game. So I, I, I don't know how Drew does it. It's East Coast producing content and playing. Like I understand why he's playing less now. Yeah, it's like a whole different thing when you're doing bad and the projections are doing bad and you're on alerts. Yeah, the 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 weight that I don't know, and I don't know if this is the case for everybody. I feel like it is the case for the people that we work with. The weight of other people's results on your shoulders is a difficult one to deal with. And when we started doing all of this and (laughs) we were able to really move the needle on win rates for people in a substantial way, it felt great. It felt great to hear of everybody doing so well all the time. And now we're in a case where I think we're still, you know, we're still benefiting most of the players, but there's certainly some people that, that come to us and they just, they're not, they don't understand DFS well enough and they're not like playing the games in the way that we're trying to help them play the games. And so they're just like pressing buttons and seeing what they get. And those people are, are taking on too much risk for what they're trying to accomplish. And like those people are, are difficult to kind of deal with their expectations. And so I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was I wanted to try to get something out there that provided people with some, you know, more realistic idea of what the expectations are to be like a professional DFS player and all the different downsides that you have to it. Because I think it's, you know, we live in like a, a DFS Twitter culture of screenshots all the time. 
and for like the pro for the pro players who also do like content and stuff, it does drive people to subbing to the site. So there's, there's a reason to do that, but it's also like, it provides this false sense of security in terms of what people are getting when they sign up for a site or what they're trying to get, what they're trying to do when they get into DFS. And I ultimately believe that if you're playing DFS, you should be playing it largely for entertainment value. And if you're not getting entertainment value out of it because you're too focused on results or you're getting frustrated or whatever, um, then you're, you're, you shouldn't be doing this. Like this should be an entertainment aspect that you enjoy trying to get better at and then eventually enjoy the sweat of potentially getting into one of those really high prize pools and having variants be on your side. And like, that's, that's certainly the only reason anyone would ever play PGA DFS was to be to make watching <laughs> a golf tournament more enjoyable because no one but Colin Drew has ever won at PGA DFS. Yeah, I mean, look, if, you, if you're not a professional player right now, I, I have a hard time seeing how you could become one. I just don't see the path of being able to build up the money that you have to have to sustain the swings. Like, yeah. it, it's just really you would need you would need you would need like 4x my net worth like you'd need to have such a crazy amount of money to endure an entire like 365 days of playing professionally like i just like i couldn't even fathom like i I would never want to have twenty thousand dollars out in a night i don't think i just think you can so easily have a losing season in any sport and okay so you're professional you need to have that money set aside so you can pay your bills and go through that downswing and still be okay knowing that you're probably gonna be playing worse throughout that because there's no way it's not going to impact you and like we hit on this earlier it's just where's the line of if it's worth playing or not because you can take that the amount of money you need to play dfs you can almost certainly take that money and deploy it somewhere else with way less variance and way less stress so that's kind of like we've been walking that line have we crossed over it have we not i don't know for some of us have been doing this for so long. It's like, okay, we, we know that we can make money doing this. And, and so some of it's just like not wanting to take the risk of trying something new. But when you actually sit down and look at the numbers, it's, it's kind of head scratching that there's so many people still bashing their heads together. <laughs> well, it's just so much more fun to sweat on a daily basis than the stock market or crypto or, you know, whatever, whatever it well, is. But I'm not even saying like trading, trading stocks or crypto. I mean, there's so many things that you could be doing, small businesses, whatever. Um, right. It's, it's literally endless. That And the stress, I mean, you, I read articles about the effect that stress has on your long-term health, like Alzheimer's, all kinds of crazy stuff. And we're injecting like this insane amount of stress on a daily basis. So that really that concerns me, certainly. And that's definitely why I don't play MLB. Like these guys that play all year round, I have no fucking clue how they do it because I would literally, I would just go insane. Like, I would just completely lose it, and yeah, I tried. This is why Dink wanted to do this podcast. He needed an hour. Yeah. Of I, was, I was on the verge of going insane. I had <laughs> I had Wiggins to swoop in and help me with meditation bets a few months ago that we were doing that got me into uh, into trying to capture a little bit more mindfulness in my day, and that that was helpful. But yeah, this this lifestyle is very very difficult, and it's taken its toll on me over the last few years. And um, you know, I've changed my approach to it as a result, but. I think it's something that you know people should see and they should understand um, in terms of what it means to be doing this for a living because it's not, I don't think it's what most people think of it when they're like casually thinking of what it's like to be a professional DFS player. Do you and meditate? As far as the people- I don't, I don't, I was in a, I was in a good groove with Wiggins and then we, we, we took the pedal off uh, the foot off the pedal in terms of the bets and I eventually went to, went to shit with it. So I have not been doing it 
uh, as a, on a frequent basis since then. What about you, yeah. Wiggins? Nah, I come and go. I, I, I had like a two-week stretch up until about a week ago, and then I haven't meditated in the last week, which is kind of – it's like I'll get on a run and I'll do well, and then, and then I'll go like a week, two weeks, six weeks without, without doing it at all. Have so. you started doing the fasting? I've been doing, well, I was already doing a little bit of intermittent fasting, but I've been taking a lot more seriously lately and I've been trying to push it a little bit to. Uh, He's trying I, to get people to do this water fast, which no one, no one wants any part of, right? Yeah, I think I'm going to do a four day water fast, but I'll, we'll see. I'll do, I'll do a, I'll do a two day water fast with you. Yeah. <laughs> Not enough. Do Not enough I've been days. wanting to do it for a long time, but it's, it's like, it's pretty scary. I did a, I did a week long juice fast, like six or seven years ago. And obviously you're still consuming calories and it sucked. So the idea of like only drinking water for four days, plus I, I, I would, I have a pretty high metabolism, so I have to do what I can to keep weight on. I feel like I'd probably lose 10, 15 pounds, which is not. I don't, I don't have that issue. So I think it, this would be a uh, walk in the park for me. <laughs> but I have been enjoying the intermittent fasting. I've been trying to, like 16 minimum and, and I've been able to push it up to 20 hours some days. So I'm going to keep focusing on that, try and do that five or six days a week. And that helps you cut out having a random beer at night or, or just like snacking, not, not that I'm a big snacker, but I, I just, I just love the mental clarity that comes with any, any sort of uh, like additive discipline, like whether it be meditating, whether it be fasting, whether it be exercise, just like, and if you're able to get two of those three things or three of those three things in a day, I, I think that um, my experience has been that the, the stress and the like, uh, you know, the, the blue light exhaustion from staring at the laptop and everything, all of those things just seemed like, it just seems to be less cutting and less draining when you're able to apply the other controlled parts to your life. I think absolutely. I think that's some, I consider that part of my job working out daily, hopefully meditating, eating clean, those types of things, anything I can do to try and reduce the stress or just give an outlet because you know, you have this pent up frustration from playing like yeah you, you can't you can't yell at De'Aaron Fox so you have to you got to go run six miles yeah so I mean for me that's that's really part of, I can say that part of my job like going to the gym um and you know it gives you an opportunity to listen to podcasts which are related to to work so I mean there's that aspect of it too but good yeah, ROI on time always. listening to podcasts at the gym 2x yeah <laughs> dink anything you else you didn't have the speed up on his podcast forever thank god they finally added that <laughs> yeah that was a that was a constant request from from wiggins and i don't i don't ever listen to my podcasts on 2x no podcast ever you listen to them on straight one, one I, listen to, I listen to them on straight one. Oh my god i tried to listen to right i tried to listen to the dunked on show on like 1.5 and danny larue's voice sounded so ridiculous at 1.5 that i was like this just is not for me i can't do it <laughs> So, so part of it, I think, is the app you're using. Some apps are way better than others, and I would recommend the Overcast app. Overcast, yeah, that's what that's what really all serious good. podcast listeners use. Well, that was actually one of the reasons why I switched from a Samsung phone to an iPhone. There's it was like that app, and there's another app called Relisten, which takes all of these live concerts and you can listen to them for free. And then I wanted the AirPods, and those three things. I was like, okay, that that should make it worth it. But the podcast, like, you'll get used to it. If I listen to a podcast on One X now, it's just especially like Rogan because he kind of talks slow um, or like when he had Elon Musk on, I listened to that live and it, it was just such a weird experience because I hadn't listened to Rogan 
at normal speed in, in like but i think that's period. more an example of technology brain warp where it's like making a normal human voice sound weird to you and i don't want to add more of a technology brain warp to myself yeah i mean i get that but it's really only just for podcasts it's not in regular conversation where like oh drew you should be talking faster <laughs> But you're just, if you're listening, I don't know how many podcasts you listen to a day, but I probably listen to two or three or sometimes more. I listen to like four or five a day. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, imagine just cutting that time in half. Yeah. But uh, not, not everything needs to be cut in half for the sake of being cut in half. And sometimes you just want to have an organic experience. (laughs) Not with podcasting. It's like in the matrix and they're just downloading, you know, how to, how to fight like into his brain. All of a sudden he's a mad artist. Like that's kind of what podcasting is, but Dink, I think I'm sure is on the two X train because he's such a robot. Uh, so I have tried two X. I settled at one and a half X for a while, but now I'm back to one X because I'm not listening to that many podcasts per day. So like I I will listen to one X and I'm totally happy. With just that. just the take cast, right? I also I also don't listen to music, so I don't have to. I have no competing time for any of this. So yeah, like that would be I, weird. When I drive around in a car or whatever, I have a podcast on. When I'm like working, I have a podcast on, like, and I'll listen like one or two a day, and that's that's good for me. Otherwise, yeah, I'll have a Levitard show on, on ESPN simulcast. I got to get a full fish concert, a full dead concert, in, and then four podcasts. So we just don't. Yeah, do- I do. <laughs> I do listen. I will say that. I will say that working in sports and being so immersed in podcasting has made me listen to like noticeably less music than I did like when I was in college or whatever. Sad. Like, I probably only listen to music like an hour a day total, I would guess. Yeah, so cut your podcasting time in half. Replace music. music. Yeah. I was at a concert last night, Wiggins. This is how we'll end. And I will give you, I will, I will PayPal you $25 right now if you can guess on the first try who I went to go see. It was a big uh, concert. It was at the Sprint Center in Kansas City, which is like, I think. Well, nobody good dude, comes to Kansas City. But. That is, dude, we get all the major tours. So that's what the basketball or what were that? What's yeah, the it's it's the basketball arena. It's like fifteen thousand people probably. Jeez, man, I don't know anything about popular music these days. Justin Timberlake. Come on, bro. You think I'd go see JT? <laughs> Not Justin I've Timberlake. Seen, I've actually seen him, and he's pretty good. I, I know he's touring right now. I touring. think I'm going to take your advice and see uh, John Mayer when he comes with the Dead and Co. Though. Oh yeah, man, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll do that. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away the concert I went to though. What? Uh, yeah. You gonna turn Why it not? into a giveaway in your mentions? Yeah. No, I'll let I'll let uh, if anyone made it to the end of this episode, I'll let them guess, <laughs> and uh, winner winner will get. I'll ship them something. I don't know. Maybe a fantasy insider. Well, you know, they can just they can just look it up now. They can just look, see who played Sprint Sprint Arena last. Oh, night. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I I saw Travis Scott last night. Oh man, I, was it good? Yeah, he's he's incredible live. The music the music right. has very little artistry, but uh, he's he's a very good live performer. I would go again. Yeah, I, I can't do the rap live. I mean, J Cole seemed pretty decent at the NBA All Star thing, but even that, I just can't do it. Unless J Cole, of- big big Dennis Smith Jr. fan, J Cole. <laughs> True story. All right, Dink. Anything else? Did we cover? Did we cover the agenda? No, I, did, I, okay. I, I think we I think we covered the agenda well. I hope uh, those of you who have aspirations to be a professional DFS player now have an understanding of the life that that you have ahead of you. If you'd like to choose to chase that dream, and basically uh, we hope that you all feel really sympathetic for Drew and Wigan. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the goal. We needed we needed more uh, more sympathy for the one percenters out there. That's, yeah, that's definitely. <laughs> 
Wiggins. I'd like to close by saying that the world has never been a better place. So understand that everything that Drew and David Davis had said on previous podcasts is false. Socialism is proven to not work. All you got to do is crack a history book. Amazing takes. Amazing takes from <laughs> Andrew Wiggins right now. This is exactly why I wanted to have you on. Yeah. Today's a good day to be alive. Today the, pro- the problem with doing alive. podcasts with Davis about the political environment is that you try to you try to hint at ideas that are socialistic in nature, and then you immediately get labeled, oh no, you're a socialist because Davis like embraces all of the ideas to the nth degree. So yeah, um, people know so, what they're people know what they're getting into when they come so on the podcast. Capitalistic societies with more uh, more capitalistic more societies with heavy welfare, welfare programs. Stronger, yeah. stronger welfare programs. I'm all for are it. General. Sure, sign me up. I probably would not like living in pure socialism, but yeah. I'd love to live. I'd love to live in a capitalist society with crazy amounts of welfare. Universal basic income, baby. It's coming. It's a slippery slope, boys. Wiggins is so <laughs> tilted. Wiggins is so tilted. This is a great way to end the show. Everyone, thank you for listening to uh, a professional DFSer's guide uh, on the Take Cast.